All right, well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. And let me just do a little bit of introduction before we begin tonight. As we said last week, the theme of John's first epistle is love. The love of God is demonstrated to and through his people. To John, God's love was the chief characteristic that distinguished those who were truly born again and children of God from those who were phony Christians, counterfeit disciples, and still children of the devil. Those who claimed to know Jesus but hated other Christians, and yet professing Christians in the early church like you have today. Uh, you know, they profess to know God, but they really don't know him. And so back then you had uh, professing Gentile Christians and professing Jewish Christians. And a lot of times the Gentiles hated the Jews and the Jews hated the Gentiles. And John said, if you call yourself a Christian and you hate your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're deceiving yourself. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. As we said last week, guys, John starts out this epistle by coming against a heretical teaching that had made inroads into the church back then, a heresy known as Gnosticism. The word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which literally means knowledge, but in Gnostic circles, the knowledge that they claimed to have, and they believed they had a deeper knowledge of spiritual things than even the apostles had. And the only way for a person to achieve that level of knowledge, this kind of a deep, mystical, esoteric knowledge, was to practice Gnostic techniques, embrace Gnostic doctrine. Now, the, the Gnostics believed, as we said last week, that matter uh, contained in the physical universe, matter was evil. And therefore, Jesus, as God, couldn't have been a flesh and blood human being, because his physical body would have made him evil, and God is not evil. Therefore, Jesus, they claimed, could not have come in the flesh. And so most Gnostics claim that he must have come as a spirit and not as a physical man. The first heresy in the church was a denial of Christ's humanity. This doctrine, a part of Gnosticism, was called docetism, which claimed that Jesus had no actual human body. He only seemed to have one they believed he was like a phantom all right and that's why the apostle john opened his epistle first epistle with the words that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life now the first time you read first john did you think that was a little odd the way he started that epistle i mean why did he have to say it like this you know that which we have heard and seen with our eyes, looked at our hands of hands concerning the word of God. Why did he start out like that? Well, now you know why. He's coming against Gnostic heresy, which taught that Jesus didn't have a physical body. John said, oh, yes, he did. We saw him. We touched him, you know, and we, we, we know he had a physical body. Other Gnostics believe that since Jesus was a physical man, just too much evidence to deny that truth, uh, and that the physical was evil and God cannot be evil, they concluded that Jesus couldn't have been God in the flesh. And so that was an attack or a denial of his divinity. And that's why John went on to mention Jesus' divinity in verse 2, when he said, the life was manifested, the life speaking of Christ, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, he's talking again about the word Jesus Christ, which was with the Father and manifested to us. So he touches right up front on two heresies, that Jesus did not have a physical body. Oh, yeah, we touched him, we handled him, we hugged him, and so on. And, well, okay, if he had a physical body, he couldn't be God in the flesh, because God, that would make him evil, and God can't be evil, so Jesus couldn't be God. Well, no, that's not true either, John said. He was eternal, came from the Father, and so on. Also, Paul and the New Testament writers, they all kind of uh, stepped up and were trying to refute some of these heresies. Uh, also, Paul the Apostle, dealing with Gnostic teaching, said uh, in Colossians 2, verses 8 and 9, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, 
according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the word, and not according to Christ, verse 9, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is God. In fact, the New Testament clearly states that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, or what the theologians have come to call the hypostatic union. One author says, and I quote, Jesus has two complete natures, one fully human and one fully divine. What the doctrine of the hypostatic union teaches is that these two natures are united in one person in the God-man. Jesus is not two persons. He is one person. The hypostatic union is the joining, mysterious though it be, of the divine and the human in one person, the person of Jesus Christ, end quote. Now, guys, as I said, Gnosticism had made its way into the church, primarily because it taught that if Christians practiced their techniques, and they had these techniques, they had certain techniques for fasting and meditating and um, chanting, all right? And if you were to practice their techniques, well, again, all the secret treasures of hidden spiritual wisdom and knowledge would be unlocked to that Christian, which means it would allow them to know Jesus and the whole Trinity in a deeper way than others who didn't get into Gnostic doctrine and practice, which is why Paul went on to declare in Colossians 2, let me read verse 9 again. I want to key in on verse 10, though. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Listen. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Paul is saying, you don't need all this esoteric Gnostic nonsense to know God. For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You are one with Christ, therefore you are complete in him. In other words, you don't need any other knowledge. There are no secrets that need to be unlocked for you to, to really... You listen to some of these characters on uh, TV and the radio uh, who are very ultra-charismatic. They always have some secret knowledge. This stuff hasn't gone away. They've always got some little secret knowledge that... Nobody else has sent away in 49.95. I'll send you my CDs that will give you the seven keys to unlock spiritual knowledge, and you'll know God in a way nobody ever knows him. They're still around. But Paul is saying, look, you want to know God? How about being one with him? You're not going to know him any deeper than that. You're one with him. You're one with Christ. And in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So once you're saved, you're connected to Christ in a very powerful way. You know God. That doesn't mean that, as Paul prayed uh, in Philippians 3, when he said, I want to know him uh, and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, right? That doesn't mean that we can't go deeper as far as knowing him and just uh, in the practical matters of our life and so on. It just means, though, that we have right now been given by God the ability to know God in a way that no pagan Gnostic could ever help you know God. You're one with God through Christ. Now, guys, there were other heresies floating around the early church, and I just bring some of these up because if you don't know what these heresies were, when you read the New Testament and you hear them saying some things, the New Testament writers, um, you may not understand, well, why did they say this? Well, they're often refuting these heresies. Another heresy that was floating around in the early church uh, that the writers of the New Testament came against, uh, one of those was called Serinthianism. Serinthianism. The founder of this doctrine, a man by the name of Serinthus, one commentator said had been an elder in the church of Ephesus. Now, we did know, do know that he lived in Ephesus. He was a contemporary of John the Apostle. So John knew this guy. Whether or not he was actually an elder in the church at one time there in Ephesus, I don't know. I haven't confirmed that yet. I'll just sort it out for your consideration. But Serenthus taught that because the physical was evil, so he bought into that Gnostic uh, teaching, uh, he taught that Jesus was only the Christ from his baptism, when John the Baptist baptized him in the Jordan, until just prior to his crucifixion. 
that when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, this man taught the Christ anointing or the Christ spirit came upon him, but that Jesus himself was not actually the Christ. They were two separate individuals. He taught that Jesus wasn't even virgin born. This Christ anointing, he taught, remained on Jesus uh, again from the time he was baptized all the way through his three and a half years of earthly ministry. And then the uh, anointing left him just prior to his crucifixion. Now this sounds like Eastern mysticism to me, which is what it is because Satan is behind it. Satan's behind all false teaching, as we have talked about uh, numerous times. Um, I believe that Hinduism was introduced into the Garden of Eden along with the truth of God, which God introduced. Satan came along and said to Eve, you know, why don't you go ahead and eat that tree? The fruit looks pretty good, doesn't it? Oh, God says we can't, uh, you know, because in the day that we eat of that tree, our eyes will be open and we will, you know, we will surely die. And Satan said, you won't surely die. God knows that in the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, your eyes will be open, you'll be enlightened, and you'll become God. You'll reach Godhood. Those are the two major tenets of Hinduism and its Western counterpart, the New Age movement. And I believe, as I've said before, that that very lie in its embryonic state in the Garden of Eden, introduced 6,000 years ago, has been growing and spreading, and it's going to be the lie that the Antichrist is going to use in some form to deceive the whole world to having people follow him before the true Christ comes back. So yeah, sounds very much like Eastern mysticism because Satan's behind all of it. And yeah, so he, uh, you know. And so that, that was part of what John was dealing with in the other New Testament writers. But uh, guys, as I said earlier, Gnosticism was the major heresy in the first century, which had made, I think, some significant inroads, not in every area, but in some areas, Ephesus was a, a real hotbed for occultism. And so in a city like that that was very much open to occultism and had a, a concentration of this kind of thing in their city, it did spill over into the church there in Ephesus and probably some other places, uh, most probably in Asia Minor and so on, where Ephesus was located. But uh, this was the major heresy of the early church and made, some, I think, some significant inroads into uh, the major heresy in the first century made some significant inroads into the church. The foundational teaching, as we said last week of Gnosticism, was that matter, the physical, was evil. And guys, this led to two philosophical schools of thought. The first said that since the physical body was evil, because all matter is evil, it had to be punished constantly, which meant it had to be starved and flagellated and uh, even denied basic hygiene, um, there's been a, more than a few asceticists. That's what they became. They were known as asceticists, those who uh, deprived themselves and punished their bodies as a way to become holy. All right? And um, they would um, go for long periods of time without eating. There's more than a few asceticists that died from starvation. They starved themselves to death trying to be holy. Okay? Um, they would walk around flagellating themselves. You've seen the whips. They'd walk around whipping themselves, just punishing the body. Of course, that led to a, a bloody uh, open sores, which got infected. I don't know how many people died from that kind of thing. Uh, they built contraptions made out of metal that were designed to clamp down on the arm or the leg or some other part of the body and be so uh, tight it would pierce the skin and bring blood, uh, you know. But again, you got to punish the body. They would even deny the body basic hygiene. So back in those days, if a person walked around with lice literally falling from their head, they were considered very holy because they were denying themselves. Now, they were in the minority. By far, the other school was much more popular. Here's what it was. The other group said, since only the spirit of man is important, the physical can be indulged with sex, food, and other excesses because it's irrelevant. The physical body is irrelevant. Only the spirit matters. Uh, it doesn't matter what you do with it. Indulge it. Whatever you want. Uh, let it have any form of debauchery that uh, the body desires. Because only the spirit of man matters. And so, of course, this was much more popular back then than the first one. 
and you had uh, false prophets running around the uh, early church uh, teaching Christians that they could do whatever they wanted to do, live in sexual sin, get drunk, etc., because, again, none of that really mattered since only the spirit of man was important. So go ahead, give the flesh whatever it wants. As I said, these teachings made their way into the church and were greatly influencing how many Christians were living their lives. And that's why so many times in this epistle, uh, John challenges believers to keep the commandments of God as a way of demonstrating our love for him, not to mention showing, keeping the commandments, showing love to other Christians by being an example to them of holiness and purity and morality and so on. Now, guys, many commentators have said that this epistle almost defies any attempt to outline it. And they say that because it's so jam-packed with various themes and exhortations that any attempt to outline it would be like laying one strand of truth upon another and another and another. And because they intersect and intertwine, you're going to wind up with a plate of doctrinal spaghetti, they basically say. So don't even bother outlining it. However, I think John may have helped us with this because he seems to have built his epistle around four reasons. Four passions that were on his heart for why he wrote this letter. Might I call it a love letter to the people of God? Four times in this epistle, John says, These things I write to you or have written to you, and here they are, that your joy may be full. So these things I have written to you, first of all, that your joy may be full, chapter 1, verse 4, that you may not sin, chapter 2, verse 1, that you be not deceived, chapter 2, verse 26, and that you may know you have eternal life, chapter 5, verse 13. It's interesting that John wrote his gospel so that people could be saved. He said that very clearly in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. That the reason he wrote his gospel is that you, so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life, eternal life, in his name. So John wrote his gospel that a person might, you know, people may get saved. He wrote his first epistle in part so that those who had received Christ, listen, might know they were saved, that they might have the assurance of salvation. Look, I'm convinced Satan can't take your salvation from you. Now, there are those who would disagree with me. I'm just telling you what I believe. I believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. That Satan cannot rob you of your eternal life. He knows that. But the next best thing is to rob you of the assurance of you having eternal life. Because if he can get you to doubt if you're a Christian, because why? Well, I keep blowing it, and I got these bad habits, and I'm still smoking and drinking and maybe watching pornography. I don't know. If Satan can capitalize on your weaknesses and get you to believe that because of these sins you have lost your salvation, well, even though you haven't, if he can get you to think you have, where you no longer have the assurance of salvation, listen, you're not going to live like a victorious Christian if you don't think you are a Christian. So that's the best thing, right? Now listen, and this is just by way of some review, laying some groundwork. John's epistle is um, universal in that it's not addressed to a person or a group or any particular church, not to the church of Ephesus or the church at Colossae or whatever, Okay. He wrote it for the body of Christ in general and not for anyone in particular. You will notice how similar, we'll see this, we'll, we, we'll keep going back and forth from 1 John to the Gospel of John because they so intertwine and uh, what, what the Gospel introduces but doesn't really explain too much, often John will take it and expand on it. You get a fuller understanding of what was introduced in the Gospel. Sometimes the Gospel presents something in a detailed way and then John just mentions it because you know he's already written about it uh, in his gospel and, and by the way the language is so similar between John's gospel and his first epistle uh, that's one of the main reasons scholars believe that the same man wrote both okay 
As, as we said last week, guys, John opens his first epistle with the words, that which was from the beginning. That which was from the beginning. Last week we said that this was John's way of presenting up front the eternality of Jesus Christ. The eternality or the eternalness of Jesus Christ. John also opened his gospel with this truth, that Jesus Christ never had a beginning. He was not a created being, but has always existed as the Word. The Word, God Almighty, second person of the Trinity. Here's how John opens his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now look back at 1 John 1, and let's read the first two verses again. I'll just condense verse 1. That which was from the beginning, the word of life, verse 2. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. The word manifested is the Greek word phanerao, which means to cause to become visible, to make appear, to cause to be seen. It reminds us of what Paul said about Jesus in Colossians 1, verse 15. You remember when he said that he, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word translated image was used of an image made by impression, as when Caesar's image was stamped on a coin. Paul is telling us that God the Father stamped his image on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And this allowed man to see what God is like. See, God is spirit and is therefore invisible. But through the incarnation, the invisible God became a visible flesh and blood man. And as John said in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him or he has made him known. John 14, verse 9, remember what Philip said, Lord, show us the Father will be satisfied. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? We'll talk more about that as we go, all right? But um, let me just quote something from author Warren Worsby, who last Thursday evening went home to be at the Lord. Uh, 89 years old, and uh, I don't think there's ever going to be another one like him. I think he wrote 50-plus books. Um, I've been blessed through many of them. I think it was more than that. But uh, I use his comment. I, I, I quote Worsby all the time. Why do I do that? Because he was a common man's theologian. I could quote to you guys. I don't even know what they're talking about. I've been a pastor 40 years. I don't even know the slightest idea what this egghead's talking about. He's thrown around all these fancy terms. You know what? Worsby was brilliant but simple. And that's why I really appreciate his ministry. And he lives on through the works that God uh, led him to, uh, to write and so on. But he said God has revealed himself in creation. We just talked about Jesus being the uh, image of the invisible God. But Worsby said God has revealed himself in creation, Romans 1.20. But creation alone could never tell us the story of God's love. God has also revealed himself much more fully in his word, the Bible. But God's final and most complete revelation is in his Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. John 14, 9. And so, guys, when Paul declared in Colossians 1, verse 15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, what he was saying is that Jesus Christ is the perfect manifestation of the Father in human form. Jesus Christ was the perfect manifestation of the Father in human form. But John goes on to tell us why Jesus, God, was manifested among us. Apart from the fact, one of the main reasons was to show us what the invisible God was like. Very important, okay? Very important. That, that was good. Good been good enough. But why, other than that, was Jesus, the Word, why was He manifested? Why was He incarnated on the earth? What was the purpose? 
Well, using the same Greek word for manifested that he used in verse 2 of chapter 1, he uses it again in chapter 3, verse 5. He said, and you know that he was manifested, same Greek word, to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. That's one of those verses when somebody asks you, how do you know Jesus was sinless? Show me. Well, here's one of them right here. Okay? And there's others, but keep a mental note of these, all right? Because I've had people say, well, how do you know Jesus was sinless? I believe as a man he must have sinned. Well, the Bible says he was sinless. Where? Show me. Well, here's one place. Okay. All right? Uh, again, we'll have a lot more to say about uh, Jesus manifesting himself uh, in human form to uh, propitiate the Father's righteousness and to die for our sins. Okay? We'll have a lot more to say about that when we get to chapter 2, so I'll leave it till then. But again, verse 2, he said, The life, Jesus Christ, was manifested, and we have, listen, seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. The word witness comes from the Greek word martis, martis. Of course, a witness is someone who gives testimony in a trial as to what they have seen or heard. A witness is someone who gives testimony in a trial of what they have seen or heard. Those who were eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, they went around proclaiming what they had seen and heard, often to their own peril. Turn to Acts 4. Now, this goes back to Acts 3, where God used Peter to heal a guy who had been lame for like 40 years, 38 years, right? And uh, God used Peter to heal him. And this created quite a commotion and led to Peter preaching a pretty powerful sermon to the crowd that gathered. Uh, well, the uh, scribes and Pharisees and chief priests were not happy. And so we read in chapter 4, verse 18, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, because they preached the risen Christ, okay? And they commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, these are the leaders of Israel now, the religious leaders, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. They're being witnesses, right? Verse 21, so when they had further threatened Peter and John, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, the crowds, <laughs> since they all glorified God for what had been done. Now, uh, go down to Acts 5. So another little brouhaha erupted because these men were continuing to preach Christ, the risen Christ. And so they, they threatened them again with bodily harm or imprisonment if they didn't shut up. But uh, verse 29, Peter said, and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand, to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. So we are, they were acting as true witnesses, declaring what they had seen and heard. Now listen, eventually the persecution against Christians who went around testifying uh, of the risen Christ, and that we would call it today, they went around witnessing to people, okay? But eventually, the persecution against Christians who went around testifying uh, to others of the resurrection of Christ, uh, this um, persecution escalated to the point where the Roman government began to kill Christians for their testimony. So much so that the very word martis, which actually means witness, became synonymous with dying for the faith, which is where the word martyr comes from. Because the word martyr is meant to just witness. And as they were going around witnessing to people that they had seen the risen Christ, 
because it was causing such a commotion, the Roman government began to arrest and then kill these Christians so that to witness for Christ meant you were going to probably die. And so Martis was just transliterated into the English language by the word martyr, one who dies for the faith. But listen, what the devil intended for evil to stamp out the Christian church, God used for good. As the ancient Christian writer Tertullian said, and I'm quoting him, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, end quote. You see, what happened was the persecution weeded out all of the phonies, all of the thrill seekers, all those who wanted to just kind of attach themselves to the church for entertainment or excitement or maybe to get a healing or some other miracle. But of course, people like that are not really committed to Christ, not really saved. When persecution arises, they don't want that. And so they, they split. So what had happened was it purified the church, the persecution. And when others saw that the real Christians were willing to die for what they believed in, and actually went to their death singing praise songs and praying that God would forgive those who were putting them to death, it so moved the hearts of these people who didn't have anything to live for. It was such an empty culture. Yeah, wealthy, but very empty. People didn't even have a reason to live for the good stuff, let alone die for anything else. And so it began to turn people's hearts, and people began to join the church because... These Christians were the real deal. Nobody is going to die for a lie. No phony is going to die for a, a lie. So these people must really believe what they preach. If they're willing to die for it, to me that says what they believe is true. And so the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. Now back in 1 John 1 verse 3, John said that that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, so there being a witness now, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now guys, the word fellowship is a very important word in the New Testament, especially in John's writings and especially here in 1 John. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, which simply means to have in common, to have in common. As one author defined this word, we don't have an English equivalent. We have to use multiple words to get across the meaning of koinonia, all right? And as one author defines it, it means a sharing, a communion, a common bond, a common life. It speaks of a living, breathing, sharing, loving relationship with another person. Perhaps looking at Acts 2, 44 and 45 will help us to understand a little better what's in view with this word, because we see it used there. It comes through in verse 44, but verse 45 explains what it means. And let me read it to you. Talking about the early church, it says, Now all who believed were together and had all things, listen, in common, koinonia. What did that mean? How did that look, what did that look like? Well, they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So that's what it was all about. Now, we talk about fellowship. When we talk about it, it's often, hey, we had some good fellowship after church on Sunday. What would you do? We went out to the you know, Sizzler and uh, you know, had a nice big, you know, or we had some good time around the coffee table and had some donuts and stuff and fine. Fine, fine, I'm not putting that down. Okay, I like a donut as well as the next guy. <laughs> I'm just saying that koinonia is a lot deeper than that. We can't bear each other's burdens. Uh, laugh with those who laugh. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Pray for one another. Be of like mind with one another if we don't know each other. And that is the downfall of the modern church. We're way too independent. We come to church. We superficially say, hi, how's it going? We don't really care how it I'm not saying that none of you do. But let's face it, a lot of Christians, hey, how's it going? Would you like to know? Come and sit down for me. Oh, I got to go somewhere, you know. I don't really want to know how it's going. I'm just wanting to make conversation. Well, see, 
in that culture, they really did have koinonia. They, they really did know each other. And they got together, and they really bore each other's burdens, prayed for each other, uh, were of the same mind with each other. And if anyone, because they knew each other so well, if somebody had a need and, and somebody else could meet that need, they did. They sold property or they, uh, whatever they could do to meet a need. The body of Christ really working together as one, one family, a beautiful thing, powerful. It drew a lot of unbelievers to the body of Christ, and they got saved. But listen, guys, John talks about our fellowship is really in the Father and in his Son, and, and that, that's the key to this whole thing. We Christians have, what well, we Christians really have in common, the thing that really binds us together and makes us one, is our relationship with God through the new birth. Now, and we just finished Second Peter, but you remember back in Second Peter chapter one verse four, Peter says that when we were, when we received Jesus uh, and were saved, at that instant, he said we became partakers of the divine nature. The term partakers in Peter's epistle is from the same Greek root that is translated fellowship in 1 John 1, 3. And it speaks of our oneness in Christ, with Christ, and because we are members of the body of Christ, our fellowship or oneness with all other Christians. Listen, our fellowship with God is both positional and practical fellowship. Understand this. We enter positional fellowship, oneness with him, at the moment of salvation. That fellowship, guys, can never be broken because it's eternal and unconditional. Now, now, I've said this before. Let me say it again, all right? When you're reading the New Testament, make sure that when you read a statement or something that, you know, make sure you understand the context, yes, but determine whether it's a positional truth or a practical truth. Positionally, once you accept Christ, you are placed in Christ. That is a positional standing uh, that once you're in Christ, you are sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. You will never fall out of Christ through sin. I'm not advocating sin, I'm just saying. And John's going to say, look... If, you know, he's talking about fellowship with God, our oneness with him, that doesn't mean we're never going to sin. In fact, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth isn't even in us. But the idea is that once you give your heart to Christ, you are placed in Christ, you have positional fellowship, and that's never going to change because it's eternal and it's unconditional. I was just talking to a lady last night, somebody called who goes to our church, and she was... Uh, uh, with a friend of hers, and they were talking about the Bible, and the subject of covenants came up. You know, the Bible says our God is a covenant-keeping God. So covenants are very important, right? And it's, it's, it's important that we understand how they work. And uh, basically, her question was, since Israel was unfaithful and, and rejected their Messiah, did that break the covenant that God made with them so that they're no longer... Uh, entitled to the land and so on and without getting into the whole thing because I've talked to, uh, to you about it before I told this lady I said look in the Bible there are two kinds of covenants there are unilateral or unconditional covenants which are promises and then you have bilateral which are two-party contracts or promises in those days if they wanted to enter into a contract with somebody two people they would kill an animal, cut it in two, place the parts on the ground, and then they would walk through those animal parts. The word covenant means to cut. It was a blood covenant. They would walk through those animal parts, and that would ratify the covenant. Now, they both had terms to fulfill. If one person didn't keep their terms, didn't fulfill their terms, the whole covenant was rendered null and void, right? But there were also unilateral covenants, one-party contract. I said it's like a will. If you have a rich uncle and 
he said in his will that once he dies, he's going to uh, give you, you're going to inherit his house, we'll say. So that when he dies and you're brought in for the reading of the will, the attorney says, now we will drop the title to transfer it over to you because the house belongs to you now. That person doesn't have to fulfill any terms. It's a one-party promise, a one unilateral covenant contract. So that when I die, you're going to get this. That's all there is to it, right? When God made the covenant with Abraham, this is so important, don't miss this. In Genesis 15, part of the covenant is a promise, God said, that, uh, that uh, through Abraham and the messianic line would come the Messiah. But if you read in chapter 17, God explained that it was, just, it was more than that. Part of it was that they would own the land in perpetuity. The land of Canaan, the promised land, would be theirs by virtue of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, when God ratified this covenant with Abraham, you remember what happened in Genesis 15. Abraham killed some animals, laid the animal parts on the ground, and instead of both Abraham and God walking through those animal parts, God knocked Abraham out, okay? He went into a deep sleep, and God in the form of a smoking oven and burning torch, the Shekinah glory. Remember the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. God himself walked through those animal parts, ratifying the covenant, signifying it was a unilateral, one-party contract or covenant. It was unconditional because Israel had no terms to fulfill. That's why that land is theirs. It has been from the time God promised it to Abraham because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and God can give it to whoever he wants. Now I said, this is why it's important for us as Christians in the new covenant. This is important for us to understand this. The new covenant was a unilateral promise that God made with the human race that any who would receive Jesus as their Messiah, their Savior, they would have eternal life. How long is eternal life? Until you blow it? Or is it life for eternity? Right? This was a unilateral covenant. So how do you know that? Because in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, God says he made the covenant before time began. We weren't there. We weren't there to enter into this covenant. It was a unilateral, unconditional covenant that God made with himself. And since we had nothing to do in bringing it about, we just believed it by faith and God gave it to us. We, we entered into the covenant. We can do nothing to forfeit the covenant. Just like Israel can't forfeit the land, we can't forfeit eternal life. Because it's a promise that God made with himself. Aren't you glad? Aren't you, aren't you happy about that? And, and why so many Christians live under constant fear and condemnation? Because their churches are telling them that you can forfeit eternal life if you don't live a holy life or do these certain things or adhere to our list of do's and don'ts or whatever. Perfect love does what? Casts out fear. God's love was perfected in the new covenant. I can't forfeit it. And that releases me from all fear. Now, because I know that I am God's child forever, it doesn't make me want to sin more. It makes me want to sin less. How could I do anything less than to serve a God who is that gracious, that wonderful, who doesn't say to me every day I wake up, Phil, today you better perform right you better toe the line. You, be, you, know, you better live a right life. Otherwise, I'm going to throw you out of the family. No, he says, Phil, by my grace today, I will give you the strength to live for me. If you blow it, you confess your sins unfaithful and just to forgive you your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. No matter how badly you blow it, you will always be my child. Wow. And anybody who hears that and says, oh, I'm going to go sin like crazy now because I'm saved by grace. You know what? You are proving you don't know Jesus Christ. So that's positional fellowship. However, there is practical fellowship. 
It's a whole different thing now. And practical fellowship with the Lord can be broken through sin. That doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It just means you lose the blessings. God can't bless us when we're living in sin. He doesn't disown us. He doesn't kick us out of the family. But he can't pour his blessings upon us the way he wants to if we're living in sin. So practically, practical fellowship can be broken through sin. And if it's broken, it can only be restored, listen, through confession and repentance. Turn to Isaiah 59. You know it. I'll just read it to you, though. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the, la- the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. So why isn't God listening to my prayers? Why isn't God working on my behalf? Your iniquities. It's because of your iniquities. They have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. won't hear your prayers. Uh, he hears your prayers, but he won't hear them in a way which means to uh, hear favorably and bless you uh, and what you're asking for. Again, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Ours that cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and at that point, our practical fellowship is restored. Now, guys, this fellowship with God allows us to have fellowship with other Christians who are all bound together as one in the body of Christ, all right? Think of Jesus' own disciples for a minute, okay? Um, and see how these men became one with each other by following Jesus, men who were very different and often very difficult to get along with all right think about what the lord did i'll just read the way one pastor put it okay uh and think about this okay he said and i quote look at the men jesus chose to start the most important religious movement in the history of mankind a man who was impulsive and unstable peter a couple of hotheads that would be james and john a skeptic nathaniel a doubter, Thomas, a traitor extortioner, that would be Matthew the tax collector, a political rabble-rouser slash assassin, Simon the zealot. I mean, come on. How do you get such a diverse group of men to love each other, have unity with each other, and work together? How? By saving them, filling them with the Holy Spirit, and making them a part of one body, the body of Christ. That's how, end quote. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's not like joining the Rotary, you know. Well, we got unity down at the Rotary. The VFW Hall, we have a lot of unity down there. Great. You like to hang out with each other. Super. We as the body of Christ have an intimate spiritual connection that goes beyond any earthly group that would, they could ever know. Our fellowship or our unity as believers with each other is also, listen, very important to the Lord. Listen to me now. Our unity with each other. A lot of Christians take this way too lightly. And I'm convinced that's why they are reaping some negative consequences. They don't realize they are violating something that's sacred to the Lord. Turn to John 17. Our fellowship with each other is very important to the Lord. This is the Lord's prayer. The other one, that's the disciples' prayer. Forgive me my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. Jesus couldn't have prayed that prayer. This is the Lord's prayer. His high priestly prayer. Prayed the night before the cross. Listen to what was on his heart. He knew he had only hours to live before the crucifixion. Listen to what was on his heart. What was most important to him. I'll just pick out a few verses. You can read the whole thing at your leisure. But John 17 verse 11. Speaking to his father, he said, I am no longer in the world, but these, my disciples, the 12, or the 11 by this point, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Verse 13, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world that you may have that, excuse me, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So you know what? Jesus Christ just prayed for you tonight and for me. He started out praying for, the, for his apostles right there, his disciples. But then he expands it to say anyone who would ever get saved through their preaching and writing of New Testament books, I pray for them now, Father. Sons, shivers up your spine to know that Jesus Christ prayed for you the night before he went to the cross. I don't pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that I have sent, excuse me, that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Wow, that is an incredible prayer. And it's all based around Jesus' desire, his last, what do you call it when a man is ready to get, you know, be executed, and he has one final request, right? This was his final request, that his people would be one with each other, even as the Father and Jesus are one, that we'd all be one together. Look, our fellowship with God is a vital living connection that allows us to be partakers of his divine nature to literally be one with him. 1 Corinthians six seventeen, But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. This one out of Ephesians. It's a mind blower. Ephesians 5, verses 30 to 32. Paul said, For we are members of his body and uh, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Talk about marriage, right? Oh, wait a minute. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church, that we are one with him. Guys, this connection with him, this communion or oneness, allows the life of God, and we'll, we'll close with this, because this is just presenting or introducing what John's going to get into now and, uh, and elaborate on. These, this is so important, okay? But um, this connection that we have with him through salvation, this oneness, communion, allows the life of God to flow into and through our lives in the person of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. As the Holy Spirit flows through us, the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow in us and then from us. Turn to John 15. Of course, John 15, and keep your finger here, we'll, we'll also come back to it in just a second, but um, John 15, verse 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me, you can do nothing. So you cannot bear spiritual fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, if you are not connected to Christ in salvation. When you receive Christ, we are made one with him. Like, for this illustration, the branch of a fruit-bearing tree or a vine connected to the trunk is going to bring forth fruit. Without the connection, there can be no fruit, right? Galatians 5, 22 and 3 the fruit of the Spirit is love, of course, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So once we're connected to Christ, the Spirit of God now flows from Christ into us. And of course, the result is we begin to bear fruit. Keep your finger there in John 15, and I'll just read to you once again 1 John 1, 3 and 4. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, verse 4, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. John is telling us that our fellowship with the Lord and other Christians produces wonderful fruit in our lives. 
The first one he lists is fullness of joy. All the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, long-suffering, all the ones we just talked about in Galatians 5, 22 and 3, they are all attributes of God. They can't be manufactured on the earth uh, through any human effort. All right? I mean, they've come a long way with artificial fruit. Now, I don't know if when you were a kid, if you went into a department store and they had a little display, you know, some fruit there, wax fruit. I mean, it was pretty pathetic. I mean, nobody would walk over and go, that looks delicious, and take a bite out of the apple or something. It's pretty pathetic looking stuff. Today it looks pretty real. The only way you can really tell maybe is to take a bite out of it. Okay, you realize now it's not real. There are some people that are very good at counterfeiting the fruit of the Spirit. The love. The joy, you know. You're around them and they just exude love and joy and always at peace, never flustered, you know. I like to know what they're like in private. Because I know they're not saved for various reasons. But the true fruit of the Spirit can only come from the Holy Spirit. And that means the Holy Spirit has to be inside of you if the fruit is going to start bringing forth from your life. And the only way for the Holy Spirit to be inside of you, the only way for God to impart his nature within you is by the new birth. And when you've received Christ and you're walking in the Spirit, suddenly these things begin to grow in your life. Paul, didn't Paul say at the end of that Galatians 5, 22 and 3, you know, long suffering, you know, love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self control. Against such there is what? No law. You can't legislate, make a law that says you have to be joyful. It's a law. If you're not, we're going to arrest you. You have to have peace. We, we just passed a law. No, they, these are things you can't legislate. Against such there is no law, especially the law of Moses. It's, it's something that happens automatically as you are connected to Christ. So a beautiful thing happens once we're Christians. This is what John's talking about. I wrote these things that your joy might be full. What things? That you abide in Christ, that your fellowship with, with him is ongoing and genuine and, and you're in fellowship with the saints of God. It will produce in your life many wonderful fruits. Turn back to John 15. We'll close. Because what John alludes to or introduces, Jesus expanded on in the Gospel of John. I'll just read you a few of these and we'll close. But John 15, verse 7, Jesus said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy... See, he's talking about love. He's talking about joy. These are fruit of the Spirit. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Verse 17, these things I command you, that you love one another. So these are not suggestions. Oh, by the way, if you feel like it, will you love each other? These are commands. And if you're abiding in Christ... His will is your passion. His will is your passion. And John says, if you say you're saved, if you say I know him, but you have not love for the brothers, your family in Christ, and I would dare say you have no joy because hate breeds not joy. It breeds all kinds of negative things. John says, this is the test by which we know we know him or not. So, We'll pick it up next week and we'll, we'll begin to then work through these because right up the front, this, I, I'm writing this so that your joy might be full. Well, that's good. I want fullness of joy. But we have to look at what John says we need to do 
that it will become a reality in our lives on an ongoing basis, right? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this incredible epistle. I believe it contains so many wonderful principles by which we might have fullness of joy, uh, abundant agape love, that, Lord, we might just grow in the grace that you've given to us, Lord, and be all that you want us to be. So, Father, we thank you. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.